Welcome to Microgrid Knowledge, where we provide news and analysis about microgrid development and trends. This is Lisa Cohn with microgridknowledge.com. Our guest today is Dr. Neil Fromer, Executive Director of the Resnick Institute of Sustainability at Caltech. Our topic today is the drought, solar energy, energy storage, and microgrids. Be sure to pick up our free newsletter at www.microgridknowledge.com to get an early jump on prospects and trends from some of the most experienced reporters in the business. That's www.microgridknowledge.com. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about the drought and the power of solar energy and storage and microgrids to sol solve problems. Sure. Um, well, I mean, as, as I'm sure everybody in California is well aware, we're in the middle of a very severe drought. Uh, and this drought has been going on now. This is the sort of fourth year of severe drought conditions. We've had um, the driest January on record a couple months ago, and the snowpack here in California is at its lowest level ever recorded for this time of year. And that's where we get all of our water from, is from the snow and the rain that comes into California in the wintertime. Mm -hmm. And when we're low in the wintertime, it's going to be really bad in the summertime. Wow. We have the same problem here in Oregon. <laughs> yeah, well, it's all up and down the West Coast. Oregon usually is a little bit wetter than we are down here. Um, but it, uh, it, it tends to really get exasperated here in California. You know, we, we have a huge amount of agriculture uh, that happens here in the, in the middle part of the state. Um, and I heard it described by one of the people that we work with here on, on water technologies you know, very clearly. You think about the, the rain and the snowfall that comes in the wintertime as the income. Mm -hmm. And you think about the reservoirs that fill up with the, the melting snow and the rain that runs through uh, that we have all over, the, all over the state as sort of our checking account. That's what we sort of use to, to spend our money, uh, to spend our water on things. Uh, and then we have we have storage of water in the ground, groundwater, which is sort of our long-term savings. And uh, we've been getting no income, so our checking account is empty, and we're going hard into our savings account, and it's looking pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, so so now, we're, we're, so where yeah, where would solar energy and um, energy storage come into this scenario? Well, so uh, so that gets to be a, a very interesting and, and slightly complicated story, but uh, but there's a, a sort of concept that water and energy are, are inextricably, inextricably linked together, um, and it's very true here in California. We use a tremendous amount of energy to move our water around to get it out of the ground and pump it through the engineered system that we've developed uh, to get that water to the places where it needs to be used. But we also use a tremendous amount of water to generate our energy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, half to two-thirds, uh, maybe even more of the water that's used in the country is used in energy generation. I don't know specifically what the numbers are for California, but it's presumably something similar to that. Um, and well, wait a minute, back up. How is it used? Is it used for um, cooling, or how, how yeah, is it used? It's used for cooling. It's used as, a, as sort of the median. So uh, there's a lot of water that's used in cooling, and either once through cooling or even in closed cycle systems, but there's also... Uh, water is the active material in, in a coal-fired power plant. What you're doing is you're boiling water and then you're running that through the turbines. Ah, so did, now did, did you say, um, I want to make sure I heard you correct, the um, half to two-thirds of the water in the country is used for energy generation? 
That was a number that I heard. I can't. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that I have done exhaustive research to determine that that is that is accurate. Uh -huh. That is a number that gets thrown around. Wow. And uh, so, uh, and that that I believe that those are the numbers I've heard have been for the country. Uh, mm -hmm. I imagine it is similar here in the state. Um, what we see, though, as we go to uh, to look at California more specifically, uh, we have a very aggressive portfolio of renewable energy. Uh, that we're trying to push here in the state. Uh, and actually, a lot of the baseload renewable energy that we've had for a long time is hydropower. Uh, hydropower it requires water, it requires rainfall, it requires water to fill up the reservoirs in order for us to be able to use it. Uh, and so in 2014, I believe that, uh, that the amount of hydropower that we were able to generate in California was down 46%, almost 50% from the year before because of a lack of rainfall. Uh, the, the silver lining to that fairly large cloud is that we've been putting in so much solar energy that it basically completely made up for the uh, energy that was lost because of uh, a lack of water flowing through the hydroelectric dams. Well, that's yeah, interesting. So, um, and you said that 40%, the hydro was down 40% in 2014, huh? I, yeah, about 45%. Wow, so it made up for lost hydro. That's that's awesome. So you're saying basically then that solar is making up um, for the water loss through hydro. Is that the drought connection with solar? That's, that's one of them. Uh, one of them is when you think about the, uh, the lost energy that we're not getting because we don't have the hydroelectric capacity that we used to have because we don't, we're not getting the rain and the snowfall. Uh, solar is actually playing a huge role in making sure that our energy mix doesn't get too much dirtier, uh, even with all that missing hydropower. Uh, the flip side, the other part of where solar plays a big role is it's a much less water-intensive energy generation source. Uh, so again, uh, if you really want to do the full life cycle analysis, uh, there are some, there's a range of numbers out there, but uh, solar could be as much as 50% less water-intensive over, you know, per, per megawatt hour of electricity generated. Um, than, uh, than combined cycle natural gas or, or coal or nuclear. Uh, many of these technologies are, are much more. It could be even up to an order of magnitude more water use than what goes into solar. Wow. So, no, so I assume that energy storage then plays an important role here. Yeah, so energy storage always plays an important role when you're talking about solar power because solar is... Uh, both predictably and unpredictably intermittent. Uh, we always know that the sun's not going to shine at night, uh, but it will shine during the day. But we also don't know exactly when and how much it's going to shine during the day. And when you think about the electricity system that we have built up over the last 100 years, it's designed basically on, uh, on a couple of key premises. One is that our generation is coming from large central power plants that are um, dispatchable and controllable, that we may have to deal with the engineering uh, realities of how quickly they can turn on and off, uh, but we generally know that we can do that and we can schedule them appropriately. And on the other side, uh, dealing with a demand that is generally predictable in aggregate. And as you start to put in lots and lots of solar, uh, both centralized solar power plants in the desert, uh, which we see more and more of these days, but also the tremendous amount of distributed solar, which is coming in on residential and commercial rooftops, uh, throughout the state, both of those things start to go away. The generation is coming when the sun is out, not necessarily when we need it. And the demand becomes much more um, uh, random and unpredictable depending on who has solar, when they've put it in, uh, how they've connected it. And 
there's a lot of ways to try and make the system work as efficiently as possible with this changing paradigm. One of them is making sure you've got good energy storage systems on the grid. Is there any type of energy uh, storage system that works best? I know there's a lot of different types out there um, in this scenario to solve this problem. Uh, well, again, there's a lot of there's a lot of different energy storage technologies, and and uh, they're all um, they're all capable of providing the basic service of storing energy from uh, at a time that it's generated and not necessarily needed to a time where it's needed and not necessarily generated, and those span from um, mechanical systems. So actually one of the most cost-effective systems, and coming back to the drought, is actually pumping water back uphill. So the same hydroelectric uh, power systems that we have that generate electricity as the water goes from, uh, from a higher elevation to a lower elevation can be basically run in reverse and we can put some energy into moving that water back up the hill and running it back down again. Now obviously, if we're talking about a complete lack of water and not having enough to run our hydroelectric dams, that's probably not the best source for storage. Uh, under under this situation, but uh, but by and large, uh, you know, we talk about batteries, uh, large scale and small scale batteries for electricity storage. Uh, but there's but there's a wide variety of different technologies that are out there, including um, sort of what I would consider uh, calling virtual storage, which is the idea that I have things that I need to do that all require electricity, but I don't need to do them right now. So I can put them off, defer the loads that I have to put on the grid from now until a time where there might be more electricity available. So we call that demand response, and it's essentially another form of storage, sort of putting off the, the things I need to do until a time when there's, where there's energy there. And we can look at that whole mix of different scenarios and try and put them all on the grid and have them work effectively uh, together in order to try and make the whole system as efficient as possible. Now, can you be more specific about how uh, solar and storage are helping right now? Again, it comes back to the same numbers that, that we talked about, which is that, uh, that solar energy uh, per megawatt hour is a much less water-intensive energy generation source. Um, but in order to make sure that you can provide uh, predictable and stable power uh, and keep the grid reliable and secure, uh, you want to couple that with storage whenever possible in order to make sure that, that the solar power, which is uh, a little bit uh, random depending on uh, weather conditions and also will certainly fluctuate between the day and the nighttime, to make sure that's balanced out to be able to match supply and demand uh, in real time. Now, we mentioned earlier um, about um, feeding this to the grid. Now, how, how is this all connected to the grid? Sure. Well, in the end, uh, you know, everybody is still connected to the electricity grid, or almost everybody is still connected to the electricity grid here in California. Um, solar has, you know, we've seen a tremendous growth in, in grid-tied solar installations uh, on residential and commercial rooftops. And that's something that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when people were working in the solar business, they weren't really thinking about. They were thinking that solar is an alternative to the electricity grid, and you need to couple it with a huge amount of, uh, of electricity storage so that you can disconnect your, your systems. And what we've developed over the course of the last decade or more is a system uh, that still has a bunch of, uh, a bunch of hurdles and, the, and a bunch of things that can be streamlined, but where individual customers at the edge of the grid, uh, like myself or a, or a small business or a large business, can put solar panels on the roof, tie it into the grid, and be able to 
um, use that electricity in their house or their place of business when it's available. And if they have more than they need, they can provide it back to the grid uh, when that's going on. And when there's not enough solar power to power their operations, they can continue to take electricity from the, from the centralized distribution grid. But the challenge is that that becomes a very, very complicated system when you have potentially millions of people that are all connected to the grid, that are all both producing electricity at various times of the day and consuming it at other times of the day, mm -hmm. and have loads that may or may not be adaptable to uh, when there is power available and when there's not. Mm -hmm. So is that where storage comes in? Again, that's where storage, where demand response, where understanding how to uh, control the system so that the individual people that are connected into the grid uh, can still do things like set their thermostat at a comfortable level or run the, the individual processes if they're a, an industrial company that has manufacturing going. They can run as they need to run, but also can understand and sense the entire state of the system and adjust loads that need to be adjusted. Uh, or that are capable of being adjusted in order to better match supply and demand. And then you fill in the gaps that you can't quite adjust that way with energy storage, with other sources of generation, and try and minimize the amount of sort of dirty fossil power generation that we really need to have on the system as a whole. So now who's doing this? So the, it's, it's what the utilities are doing as they're purchasing more and more energy storage, correct? Uh, correct. As they purchase more storage, as they connect more uh, renewable generation, solar and wind, uh, into their system and try and figure out how to maintain the reliability. So the utilities, uh, you know, they're, they're contractually obliged to provide reliable service. And so they have to think about not just how do we get as much renewable energy as possible, which is our sort of legislative mandate for in California, uh, but also how do they maintain the reliable system that they need to provide for their customers and for the system as a whole. And that requires understanding both how to get as much renewable energy as possible onto the grid, but also understanding the, the full range of services related to the reliability of the system as a whole and the stability of the system as a whole that power plants usually provide and how they can get that out of a combination of solar and storage and other, and other technologies that are coming online now. Mm -hmm. um, so have you, do you know much, there you are at Caltech, do you know much about some of the challenges to integrating at this point? Yeah, I mean, there's a tremendous number of challenges. One of the biggest ones is that the, the mathematical sort of computational challenge associated with uh, understanding how the electricity is going to flow from where it's generated to where, it where it's used, it's a very complicated mathematical problem to solve. And under this old paradigm where we have sort of controllable supply and predictable demand, uh, we've been able to solve that problem, uh, you know, frequently enough that we can match supply and demand fairly regularly and, and okay. But as we think about the system with millions of active endpoints on it that are all participating in this in real time, that problem becomes mathematically intractable, very, very hard to solve. And so one of the things that we've been doing here that researchers at Caltech have been attacking is how can you turn that problem from one that's very hard to solve uh, to one that we can actually break up that can be solved in real time with millions of active pieces involved in it, and that can be done almost automatically, sort of in a closed loop fashion, so you don't need people sitting there saying, yes, that's right. So they can really adjust and adapt to the situation on the ground as, as quickly as possible. So how are you solving that, or what are you looking at? Well, uh, there's, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting and, and, and pretty complex question, but it starts with 
understanding the, the mathematics, the, the structure of this, these very complicated uh, mathematical problems, and then figuring out ways to relax those problems to ones that can be solved more easily, and understanding how that problem is different from the original one, and then how you can sort of take those solutions that you can get more quickly and make sure that they're actually solutions that are feasible for the whole system and that keep the whole system running in a stable and reliable manner. And then you have to find, when you really want to implement that program, you need to have devices at all of the endpoints where, where, uh, where the electricity is being used or where it's being generated uh, that can uh, take advantage of these computational things and understand how to adjust what they're doing based on the, based on the current situation that they're seeing. Mm -hmm. And those are devices uh, where if you have solar connected, they would be an inverter. That's the device that turns the direct current electrical power that's generated by the solar uh, system into the alternating current power that we usually get off of the electricity grid. Mm -hmm. uh, that, so a battery or a, or a solar panel would be connected to the grid through an inverter like this, and those can be active participants. Right now, they're not allowed to pr be particularly active, uh, but that's changing. And so as those things become active, you think about uh, your thermostat or your air conditioning system, or if you're in Southern California like we are, you may well have a pool with a pool pump. Um, there's a lot of devices, uh, even your refrigerator, that, uh, that have a certain profile on how they operate and how they use electricity, but that can be a little bit smarter and that can start to implement some of these smarter uh, ideas on how to use the electricity. And that, you mean that's for demand response? That would be part of demand response. Would be actually, sometimes it's not really demand response. Sometimes it's just sort of adjusting to the needs of the system. So, uh, you know, the solar inverters are, are one of the most obvious ways to do this. If you're over-generating uh, solar power, you can adjust how that power is being converted in to provide support, reliability support for the grid instead of just providing straight-up power for your house. Uh, but that needs to be implemented, and it needs to... It needs to work within the system as a whole. Now, um, so it's so you said you're working on the math to solving the problem of reliability using um, all this renewable energy, and I think what you said, and I want to repeat, is that you break it down into easier to solve math problems. Is that what you said? Uh, that's a yeah. That's sort of a, a way to think about it. It's it's uh, it's taking the problem that we know how to write down, but we don't really know how to solve or we know how to solve it, but we don't know how to solve it quickly um, or uh, appropriately for the, for the system as quickly as it needs to be solved. And then um, simplifying it a little bit into one that we actually can solve, but isn't necessarily exactly right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what the team here has been able to do is to show that uh, if they do that simplification, it's called relaxation, if they do that relaxation in just the right way, actually almost all the time they get the exact right answer. Hmm. And when they don't get the exact right answer, not only do they know they're not getting the exact right answer, but they know how far away from the right answer they might be. It's kind of like teaching a, um, a six-year-old to round up and down. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Um, and, and find the answer that way. Um, that's really fascinating. So what are you going to do with the math that you're coming up with? How does that translate into real-world world solutions? We're still working on that. Uh, there's a lot of people who, who need to be able to use these sorts of techniques, either the, the ones that are being developed here or similar ones. Um, and, uh, and the question now becomes, how do you implement them? How do you put them into the system that the utilities are using? And is that something that needs to be done through the regulatory process? Is that something that is done 
um, because we can develop a product that needs to be done that, that can manage the grid more effectively and that becomes a company? Uh, is it something that... Uh, these are open questions. Uh, and, and they're being tackled at a number of different levels, uh, both the technical level and sort of developing the ideas and developing the technology that will work, but also at the, at the utility implementation engineering scale, but also at the regulatory level uh, here in California and in a number of other states around the country where um, we're starting to see that the existing model for utilities doing business is incompatible with our goals for increasing the amount of renewable energy. Right. Um, and so do you think your, your math solutions will help um, regulators come up with um, better ways um, to regulate utilities? Uh, we hope so. Whether, that, whether it's a regulatory change or not, the, uh, we hope that the sorts of technologies like this and like others that are out there, both hardware and software solutions, uh, can be implemented by the utilities and can increase, uh, can help us meet the you know, renewable goals that we have here in California uh, without, without affecting the stability of the electricity grid. Right, and that's, and that's, the, whole, that's the whole problem problem is how to do that. I didn't realize that um, it was such a big math problem. That's really interesting, and you said it really well. Um, one last question. So in terms of microgrids, is there any way that you could say that they fit in? Sure. I mean, uh, microgrids are another way to think about um, the end users uh, be becoming more active participants in the electricity grid as a whole. So, uh, you know, a microgrid is essentially a group of of users that also have energy generation assets and storage and other and the other pieces that are capable of basically uh, being self-sufficient for some amount of time. So making you know disconnecting that uh, that microgrid from the from the broader grid and continuing to run. And uh, so it really is is one potential way to try and implement some of these solutions is to break. The larger distribution grid, or the larger uh, the larger electricity distribution system as a whole, into uh, smaller islandable microgrids that each have generation and use and storage components to them, and for some amount of time they're able to run on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe they can optimize a smaller problem inside there, which is how do they use their assets as, as efficiently as possible. And then uh, they only have to take a little bit of electricity or provide a little bit of electricity back to the broader grid as needed. And so it's just another way of trying to implement these ideas around how to make the system as a whole work. Do we take it and break it up into smaller pieces and make each of those work? Do we try and optimize the entire system as a whole? Do we balance those things in, in various different proportions? Right. And, and that, but that can't happen. And are you talking about doing that on a macro level? Say, okay, the only way to make this system work and to use renewable energy and storage is to um, is to have these, you know, everything broken into distributed energy. No, I don't think it needs to be that way, and I don't I don't think most people are thinking about that. But there are certain areas, and you can think about this. I sit on a university campus. Certainly, it's it's feasible to imagine a campus like ours, which has a decent amount of on-site generation, um, and also um, a particular load profile that may not be the same as the rest of the grid, uh, it's, it's certainly feasible to imagine that you could take a campus like this and turn it into essentially a microgrid. I, I don't think that um, people necessarily expect that that needs to happen for every neighborhood and every area and every part of the, uh, part of the electricity grid in order to make this work. Uh, but it's one way to try and implement some of the ideas on how you can build this balanced system that both supplies 
and uh, and uses electricity in the most efficient way possible. Mm -hmm. um, and do you think because it's so, it seems like a great idea that there will be any money flowing in the direction of microgrids or additional money as a result of that? Uh, I don't know. I certainly think that there are there are organizations and there are um, and there are particular uses where people see the value of having these islandable microgrids um, and they have different risk uh, payoff uh, curves than maybe the traditional energy user so they're more willing to accept uh, a different profile for the reliability of their energy or not where they might be willing to put a lot of money in. Um, I think as a system uh, you know California at least and, and the, other, uh, the other states that are thinking about this um, a little more seriously, you know, I think that they'll see that there's some value in, in supporting some of these projects, but whether or not, as I said, it's, it's a balance, and I don't know that anybody knows exactly how much uh, to balance, you know, how much to put in, in favor of microgrids versus the sort of fully optimized system as a whole and where that's going to fall. Right. Uh, again, it's, I think, still an open discussion. Right. Well, thank you so much. This has really been fascinating. Um, I'm really interested in the whole big math problem angle of all this, and you were um, incredibly articulate about it. Thank you. We uh, we try. Uh, it is a it is an interesting math problem, and um, a lot of people tend to skip over that and think about the electricity grid as a market, uh, but in fact, it is both a market and a very complicated engineering system, and uh, you need to do both at the same time, and that's what makes the problem such a tricky one to solve. Right. Well, thanks so much for uh, talking to me. Yeah, no problem. Okay, bye-bye. Be sure to pick up our free newsletter at www.microgridknowledge.com to get an early jump on prospects and trends from some of the most experienced reporters in the business. That's www.microgridknowledge.com.